Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fully Booked, the Hidden Gems author podcast in which Craig Touch and myself, Roland Hume, chat some of the interesting figures and leading lights of this crazy industry we're in of writing and self-publishing. And today we are delighted to have a very special guest, Patrick Greenwood, a fiction writer and a cybersecurity blogger. Welcome to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. How are you doing today? Oh, fantastic, Roland. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we are delighted to have you. And of course, we wouldn't be here without the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems and an author himself. How are you doing today, Craig? Doing great. I'm uh, excited about this conversation because I think as people uh, know, if they've been listening and reading the blogs and stuff, that I'm uh, a big fan of, well, I, I don't know, is fan the right word? I, I'm really interested in AI. I follow it uh, pretty pretty heavily. Um, I do think that they are that there's a lot of sort of things to worry about <laughs> in terms of AI, um, but you know, and we can talk a bit about that. But I do want to keep this sort of the focus of today is really to talk about AI and and um, you know where it's taking the writing industry uh, mm -hmm. and how it's going to affect us as writers. Um, but you know, I'm sure that's going to branch off into some uh, overall conversations about AI in general, and that's fine. I mean, I think that that it's such a it's such an overwhelming force in uh, in just the year or so that it's been around. Uh, nothing in my memory that I can remember has taken over so quickly. Well, maybe COVID, but <laughs> nothing has taken over so quickly and become ingrained in sort of like almost every part of our lives. Uh, as AI has, and you know, not that it's a new thing. Like AI has been around for. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, right? We were always talking about AI. I never thought I was going to see it at this level. Mm -hmm. um, certainly not in my lifetime, or at least not like within the next ten, twenty years. But it mm -hmm. seems like we woke up one day and it was here. So let's talk a bit about about how we got here and i mean you're sort of you're a cybersecurity expert you write about this this sort of stuff all the time so you're a great person to sort of talk us through um where you know what's what's where this all just sprung from and and uh and you know how how we got here and and sort of where we're going we'll go from there Absolutely. So, uh, so thank you again, guys, very much for having me on this morning as well on this beautiful podcast. Uh, so artificial intelligence has been around, to your point, it's been around for many years, uh, probably going back 15, 16 years. You know, Google has used it for years. Um, data mining is not anything new. Uh, data analytics is not new. It's been around forever. Uh, it's been around since even the late 80s where people got into data sciences for retail, where they process data to try to make things more predictable. But like who is going to buy what clothes? What day of the week are they buying? You know things like that as well. So this kind of idea has not is not new. What's changed though is that now AI is becoming ability to process more data and trying to make more data usable. Now, why this is very very important is a lot of CIOs and CISOs and CEOs are dealing with the problem of we have too much data, and we have and we're storing data and it's costing us millions of dollars to store data in the cloud, on in data centers, in tape backups. So they were on their verge of sort of purging their data for legal reasons. You know, the more data you kept, the more potential legal liability there was. And then suddenly AI came along and said, wait a minute, hold on. We need all that data. <laughs> we, need we need all that. You got to feed the beast, baby. So suddenly now we're now back in the reverse of is more data is better. Um, so AI really first started off with the ability to process as much data, make some sense of it, put it into some modeling and say, we think we know this is where 
this product's going to go. This is where people are going to buy, where people are going to live, you know, what jobs are the future. And that's fascinating from the, from the standpoint of making it more predictable. Um, you know, CEOs, CIOs, executives, investors, to be kind with you, have all become very lazy. And, and they think that AI is the answer to their, to their question, are we going to make money? What, what's the price of silver? Right? It, it, my, do I have cancer? Do I not have cancer? So people look at AI as being an answer, which is really the first big big mistake. Uh, on the writing side, uh, it's interesting how a lot of writers and especially screenwriters out here in Los Angeles, uh, you know, had a really big issue with AI, thinking, okay, I'm not going to be needed anymore. Uh, and that's not true at all. Uh, you know, AI is really great for, especially for writers like ourselves, to process information. There's petabytes of data out there. We cannot manually sift through resources and reference materials, you know, in order to write. We need AI to help sort some of that information for us. Um, so I'm a huge fan of AI from the standpoint of processing data, helping me determine headers, gives me ideas of, okay, how am I going to score from a search engine perspective? But I, I don't see AI replacing a writer because ultimately it's our, it's our words, it's our voice that people want to read. I find it so interesting that uh, Sports Illustrated just laid off all of their staff and artificial intelligence was cited as one of the major reasons for that. Yes. Yeah, and I, and they're not the only ones doing that. The LA Times is doing it out here as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, again, this is a knee-jerk reaction. I write blogs for, for technology companies under my other name of John Gormley. <laughs> and I have been actually, I've lost work uh, last year as a result of AI. People said, we're going to do chat GDP. We don't need you, whatever. And, and that lasted, to be honest with you, about three months. And then three months later, they came back and said, we don't see the voice. We're missing the identity of the content. Um, we're getting a rudimentary one-page, 800-word blog, and no one's reading it. Right. Be- because it's it's written by, you know, a robot. Now, the other thing to remember, and I think, Greg, you know, you touched on how long you know, AI's been around. You know, one of the things people are discovering is that unless you're pumping AI with a ton of data and you're processing it at high rates of speed, it gets stale very quickly. The answers get stale. The content gets stale. So as I mentioned earlier about people getting lazy, I think what Sports Illustrated is doing and the LA Times are doing is basically getting lazy. They think, oh, we can just pump it out and throw our name on it and, you know, and there it is. But the quality is absolutely definitely going to be hurt very much so. And I've noticed that. Oh, I was just going to say, I've noticed there there are some things that AI produces that are factually wrong. I did an experiment of putting through to see if AI would, could write an article about the writing of an author called Frieda McFadden, who's quite a recent but prodigiously successful author. And it made up all her books because it didn't have any information. So it made up and wrote this very convincing article about all of these books that she'd never written. And of course, yes. if you if you aren't familiar with her work, you might have looked at that and approved it for publication, even though it was 100% fictional. Yes. Yes. And remember that AI, the other problem with AI right now, as people are discovering, is that AI is really the centerpiece of deep fake. And here in the United States, we're facing this now going to election where we don't know who's on the end of the phone anymore. We don't know if that's Donald Trump's voice. We don't know if that's President Biden's voice. We don't know if, if Donald Trump really was on a plane flying to New Hampshire because of deep fake. So AI has both the positive people that are trying to discover the positive side, but from a cybersecurity side, it's already been a nightmare. I mean, the, the email phishing has become near perfect. You read an email, you really think it is from your Aunt Sally telling you you've just inherited a million dollars, click here, right? And it looks perfect. It looks like an email that Aunt Sally wrote two years ago. So uh, AI has already proven to be a, a, a problem. 
uh, for cyber and also more importantly from intellectual property. You know, people are slapping on AI, they throw their name on it and they expect protection. It's like, dude, you didn't write it. <laughs> you have no protection. <laughs> so, so there's so many things that have happened around AI. But I think that part of the problem though is that uh, it's only just the beginning. I mean, this is really going to be a very slippery slope for a couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, that that's always been my biggest fear is, you know, the 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 um, the bad actors are going to have a field day with this, being able to create all sorts of stuff. We won't be able to trust anything we see or hear anymore. Um, and that part of it is is super scary to me. And I think that uh, that problem is only going to get worse as time goes on. I think that um, the one of the biggest issues is uh, the good guys, let's say, are sort of constrained by rules and uh and and all these things that you know people want to put in place you know well we should ai should do this and shouldn't do this and shouldn't be allowed to do this the bad guys aren't going to be playing those by those rules right so they're going to have a huge advantage and by the time they start pumping that stuff out mm -hmm. everyone's going to be playing catch up to try to right. block it right and and it's not just some guy sitting in his basement it's going to be state-sponsored uh issues but Anyway, that's outside of this, this this discussion because I could go on and on for that. Um, you know, one of the things you said that that I think I think was really interesting that I've never really thought about before is the idea that um, the AI does get stale, right? And um, it has to be fed by that information. And all of these people that started to lay off writers and 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 have their content written, um, and I've I've seen it, and and I can see like if you're writing a, a blog, I mean I get the emails all the time from from companies saying hey, we can provide AI written content and whatever. Um, um, the, the, the content is flat and it's it doesn't have a lot of um, feeling to it. It's a very very you know factual if if they're even real facts, uh, you know writing it's not it's not something i would ever put on my site um but 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 the point that you made is uh, you know the idea that it would get stale if, if it's not constantly fed right. if everybody's producing content written by ai mm -hmm. that isn't really new content it's just regurgitating that old content which means it, it'll it'll just get stale even faster because there's not going to be anything new for it to pull from yes well remember that the other thing i was about content and ai and this is really uh something i i wrote about about three months ago was the federal government here in the united states has already started buying content they're starting to acquire more content because they realize that their lm models are the large language models that they use for ai they need data so even some of the biggest companies like facebook and others are going out and acquiring content from content sources now, what makes OpenAI last year very interesting was that when Sam Altman came out and said, oh, all the data sitting in OpenAI was from open source. Well, now you have lawsuits of writers going against Facebook saying, wait a minute, or even the New York Times has said, wait a minute, did you use our work in your model? Did you use our content inside your model? And is there somewhere buried within that LLM somewhere that you have a New York Times article that you have not paid us for? So I think that's really an interesting tip of the iceberg or it could be a sunken duck, either or, depending on how the courts view it. If the courts view it as this is a copyright infringement, then AI could have some big problems. However, if the court goes, we're too ignorant, we've never done this before, we have no idea, we have no presidents, they may let it slide. So this is 2024 is going to be a big year from a legal perspective on our writers really protected. Is movie people, is even just my voice, your voice, and you know Craig's voice protected? Or does that become free game as far as being pumped into AI as well? 
Right, and and I think that that's sort of a topic that um, that is relevant to this because that's one of the things. If you look at um, when you upload a book to Amazon now, they're asking questions about yeah. whether or not any of your content was AI generated, and nobody really knows for sure why they're doing that. But we can speculate, right? One of the speculations I think that's most valid is the idea that if the courts do come down and say something isn't allowed or whatever, mm -hmm. there's some restriction needs to be to be made, Amazon then has a flag that's already been set saying, here's all the books we have to worry about. Mm -hmm. We can either block them, ban them, apply the rules, whatever, right? I think that's the most likely reason why they're capturing that information. Well, um, yeah, actually to remember, if you remember a few months ago, what happened was, uh, I think it was James Patterson and another writer out here in America, said someone called her and said, hey, great book, just read your latest. And she's like, what? I didn't write that. So somebody managed to upload into Amazon assume her identity, create her own ISBN number, and release a book under this woman's name, but collect her royalties from it. And the writer who was real name was like, wait a minute, that ain't me, man. <laughs> it's on my bag, baby. That's not my book. So that's why Amazon is now doing the scan up to say, okay, where did this come from? Are you really who you say you are? And and Craig, you brought up a great point. AI is really going to be, the crisis of AI is going to be the crisis of trust. Is this really coming from a source? Is this coming from a person that really is out there? Or is this an AI-generated character? <laughs> you know, face, makeup, all the things you're seeing now with AI, where we now can use generative AI to create images of models. Is it somebody that's not even a real person anymore? But I think Amazon's doing the right thing by scanning up first and looking inside going, okay, are you... Did you write this? Is this you? And then you also have to have a library Congress number and you have to have some other stuff to prove yourself. But I do think that Amazon at least is attempting to try to address the trust issue for every content going into their site as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, when those rules do come down, we're going to see, you know, potential changes. But but and maybe you have an idea of what you think. Um, what you think that the sort of decisions will come down as it personally mm -hmm. i think that there's no way that they're going to ban it completely there's no there's just no way it's no. just too ingrained there's too many big companies using it there's too too much going on right now right mm -hmm. so i don't have a big fear some people are like oh well you know i don't want to use any kind of ai because if it becomes illegal all of a sudden i don't think that's going to happen mm -hmm. um i wouldn't make any sort of decisions with that fear as being any like it's just not valid in my opinion. No. What might happen? I think what I think what it's is is the most likely uh so there's two things. One is that they might just say we can't do anything. We can't do anything. Um and the other might be it becomes sort of like a uh royalty thing like spotify and all that where it's the big companies that are providing these LMMs that have to pay people somehow some amount i have no idea how they'll ever figure that out but or or they'll give some kind of a flat fee payout or something um and they'll bear that cost and it, it's not really going to come down to consumers other than maybe to use it the prices will go up or whatever but uh, I personally don't think, you know, anything that's written in the past, I don't think there's going to be some blanket ban on that. No, uh, no it's, yeah. it's too well ingrained. But you do, you do bring up a great point, Craig. What really has started to happen in America is that um, the legislation is starting to work on the ability to watermark your content. So anything within LLM has to have a watermark back to the person that actually wrote the original piece. That's one way. And it works the same way in the, in the music industry. When a song is played over and over again, you know, there's people that were one hit wonders that are still collecting royalties. 
So when someone plays the music from Quiet Riot from the 1980s, they're still getting money every month from that. That's because their song is watermarked. So if it's played anywhere and anywhere, or used in a movie or used on a commercial or something, there's a royalty to that. I think AI content creators like ourselves that create content will be watermarked before it enters an LLM. And then we can get royalty based on the fact that how many times has our you know content been within these different models. I think that's where it's going to go. I think then we'll be able to collect a protection of royalty. But I think the other big problem that, that we're probably going to face is you know, is disclosure. I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, big tech in America has not been great on, you know, disclosing their censorship. They've not been great on saying how much information they've suppressed during the election cycles and things. So you're not exactly trusting the truster at this point, right? So there has to be something. But I do like what the European Union has done, to be honest. I mean, there's a lot of regulations that have come out specifically around having companies disclose what's in their AI before the product can be entered into the EU. So now companies just can't show up and say, here's our product. Oh, yeah, we have AI, but we're not going to tell you what we're doing. The European Union now requires companies to disclose what's in it, what's in the black box, where's your data from, where the LM come from. And people, are, companies are very uncomfortable sharing that because that's their intellectual property. That's their competitive edge, right? So in cyber, we used to have, I used to compete with companies that wrote a you know, cyber AI product to stop hackers, but they wouldn't tell anybody how they did it. Now the European Union says, oh, if you want your product in, the, in, in, the, in our member states, tell us what's inside. And that's terrifying some companies right now. So there, I like the leadership of the EU when it comes to AI. I think U.S. is dragging their feet because there's money in politics. But I do think that the way the European Union has started to set down some laws for AI, I think, is very good. Yeah, I think my issue with that, though, is that it's the same sort of thing that I was talking about before where you know, that's all well and good if you apply those rules to those big companies, but they're going to be at a huge disadvantage against the ones that are not following those rules. And it's sort of, you know, it's a different situation. Like nobody's, I mean, I don't know, maybe there, there is um, a, like a black market Spotify out there where people can stream music and, and, and nobody's paying royalties. But in general, though, that's probably just a matter of, you know, people downloading songs, but I, there's not even really a point to it anymore. I mean, it's become so cheap, right? And commoditized. But I don't think that's the way it is with AI, right? I mean, you can have all these big LLMs, but I've, you know, I went out and I bought, you know, a, a high-end graphics card so that I could install all this stuff on my computer and sort of work on it on my own. And and without, and, and I still use ChatGPT a lot, right? It's still better than the ones that I've installed. Um, but for graphics, you know, you know, DALI is, I, I can come up with graphics, generate graphics just as good as those. And then I'm not restricted by all the different things that, you know, that the commercial ones restrict you on. And, and I think that's, that's going to be the issue is the more restrictions we put in place, the more pressure there'll be on uh, these sort of underground ones to come out. And this is sort of the thing that as technology moves on, It'll yes. just become easier and easier to run this on your own that you, you're not even going to need these really big companies. And so I don't know if watermarking is really going to be the answer because I just figured like if somebody wants to, all that means is that the ones that are doing it right will be so restricted on their content. They can only right. give you this watermark content and it'll be expensive because they'll have to be paying those people out. But then you're going to have all these underground ones that'll be like, we're everybody, every content, everything we can scrape off the web is in here. Yes. And that's what people are going to use. And I really don't see it being 
possible to stop, especially with AI, right? Like, it's, oh, watermarks. How long will it take for AI to just beat the watermarks? I'm sure. Oh, I, oh absolutely. I think it's going to be more of a stopgap. But I will I will share with you from a writer perspective. When I write a blog today, and this, I really encourage writers to do this. When I submit it, when I write a blog on behalf of a client and I'm ghostwriting for somebody, I always submit not only my plagiarism report, but I also submit my AI checker report to my clients. So when they get that report, they actually look at it and go, oh, so this is 100% original. Yes, because I'm writing as a ghost to them. They're putting their name on it, and they need to make sure that I didn't plagiarize, or more importantly, I didn't use AI to write it. So as writers, one of the things that you can help keep yourself, I would say, marketable uh, is make sure that you not only submit your plagiarism report to your clients, but also submit the AI checker report. And when it comes back as 0 slash 0.0%, you got to take a lot of pride in that. That means you are creating original content still. The good news is that in the world today, there are still companies, there's still organizations and individuals that absolutely want original content. Even though that the buzz is AI and it does it quickly, I mean, you're going to lose a percentage of clients in the world that want to go the lazy route. But I will tell you that there's a lot of other companies out there that tried that, came back and said, our brand is being affected by the quality of this stuff coming out. We want original content. Um, so when you upload things like securityboulevard.com and things like that, you actually have to have original content. But I think as a writer, I would encourage our fellow writers that if you're writing for the people you're ghosting, no problem. Just submit that plagiarism report with your content and your clients will have confidence in your work. How accurate are those AI checkers? I know that, I mean, I haven't looked at them in a while. I know that when they first were coming out, everybody was posting about how, you know, they put in their completely original stuff and it would say that it was mm-hmm. X amount percent uh ai written and you know people were putting in excerpts from from real books and it was saying yeah that was ai written or whatever like mm-hmm. I, I don't see how it could really be accurate um i'm not really clear on how it all works like unless I, I mean it's not it's not like it's keeping a database of everything it produces and then it compares against that right so it has to be looking at different ways that the sentences are constructed or whatever but it seems like that's a pretty easy thing to change you just change a few words here and there uh and then all of a sudden it's not ai written right i think it's more likely you're gonna get those false positives um and i think that that's another thing where again i feel like it would be pretty easy to tweak the ai engine to beat the checkers if if they wanted to right so uh, how 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 do those work and how accurate are they well, they're, they're, they're a work in progress, just like spell check and grammar is still a work in progress. I mean, there's a lot of companies out there that are doing spell check and grammar today that miss things, right? Especially the tools that are being written, you know, in other parts of the world that are being modernized and put into, you know, the English language. Uh, I think one of the things that's great about using those tools, though, is that it really gets the writer to find a positive way to use AI. I use several AI tools to do keyword searches. I use it to help me sort through petabytes of data. It also tells me what my SERP score is compared to other people's articles in Google. So these are valuable things that I need as a writer to know, well, is this article going to be in the top three? Can you imagine not having AI to do that? There's no way that you can manually calculate what you think your SERP score is going to be on SEO without having AI. So AI is here, and I agree with your point earlier, Craig, as well, is that it's here. It's 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 just going to be here. Now, as a writer, you have to find a way to adapt or adapt or move on because, and you have to learn to play in the AI world in some form. I think using the plagiarism checkers is good. I think using the AI checker is good. I think using it to be able to determine your SERP score is very good. I think also, more importantly, I think it also shows that 
where someone says, well, how are you using AI? You can say as a writer, I use it for research. I use it for headers. I use it for this. So you're finding ways to adapt into it. Where I think companies are missing the point is that they think it's going to replace everything. Like the 10 staff writers, we don't need them. Well, yeah, you do, because somebody still needs to proof it. Somebody still needs to read it as a human and go, hey, before we put this out on every magazine, is this really a good article or is this going to get us in trouble? The thing you brought up, which I, I want to go back on on AI a little bit, one thing AI has done poorly and will continue to do poorly is that it's not very social aware. Particularly, I know in Europe, there was a big thing in one of the European privacy policies was, you know, we do not want AI to take an opinion on culture. We don't want to differentiate one culture of another. We don't want to feel like it's picking on one side of society and not another. And AI is never going to have a conscience. Never. So you have to have that writer that takes what AI spits out. In case my case, it gives me a header, but I've got to write the content. I still have to write the verb. I still have to write the voice, right? Now, if, if you rely highly on AI and suddenly you offend somebody, then opinions really diving into it. This whole privacy thing is that we do not want AI to offend our, our culture. We don't want it to pick on one side of society over another. So I think that when companies have said, we don't need you, the reason they've come back is they said, we got into trouble by putting this out there. That's because somebody did not really read it and say, yeah, you did. I mean, you took an opinion that wasn't accurate to your company's culture. So, I, I, again, I think writers have to find a way to adapt, to find the AI to be part of their, their repertoire of tools. Uh, and that's what employers are looking for. When you interview as a writer today, that's one of the big things they ask. How do you use AI? Not do you use AI. It's how do you use AI? And I think the more that they get used to the various different tools like Phrase.io and SEMrush and some of the others that are out there, then you become more marketable and employable, right? But it's not replacing you. It just becomes an added capability to make your content better. Yeah, and I mean, that's what I've always been sort of advocating as well, is that authors don't run in fear from this, is because that was the knee-jerk reaction that, um, mm. oh, <laughs> um, that, uh, that was the knee-jerk reaction that happened um, mm. originally when it first came out, right? Mm. And I was more concerned with the idea that we don't run away from it, we instead embrace it as a tool that we can use to make our jobs easier and better. Agreed. Um, but I think, as you're, you know, as you're pointing out, there are uh, issues, and and the the whole social awareness thing. I mean, that is one of the biggest problems that that they're sort of finding is it's been uh, it's going to have that bias based on what it's been trained on. Right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So I mean, you know, conservatives can build a conservative based. AI and, and liberals or, or Democrats can can build a Democrat, you know, focused one. And uh, and you don't if you're just using some random one, you, you, you don't really know what it was trained on and what its biases might be. Um, and that's a little bit scary as well. Yes, very much so. And I and you're right. And that's really where it goes back to that beautiful element you brought up at the beginning of the broadcast was trust. Right. How are you going to trust what's there? And, and people are already starting to do that today. Or do I trust this email? Do I trust this voicemail? Am I trusting this person's opinion? Um, and I think that's where when you see people that are abandoning writers for AI and just slapping, you know, an icon or, or you know, a, a simple image of somebody on their article, that's not the article itself anymore. So I, I'm, I definitely advocate for writers to say, you know, maybe you need to diversify, become more of a copywriter 
more of a proofer. Um, I even get hired today by, by people that create this massive document with with a chat GDP, and they come back saying, would you mind editing it? Would you mind making it look so non-AI? <laughs> so so it does cost people one way or another. I said, fine, it's a 30-page document that chat GDP spit out, but now you have to pay somebody thousands of dollars to un-AI it and make it more human. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a very interesting time to be a writer, but I think learning the way to evolve into an AI world makes you more marketable and more importantly, more valuable as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not really of the opinion that it's gonna take over the writing of anything anytime soon, maybe not ever in the sense of creative writing. I can see using it for short blog articles that don't necessarily need to be, um, to have a voice or to, to be really creative or whatever. I, I don't think most places are gonna use it to that level, but there are people that are sort of really just using it to make money by generating um, uh, SEO articles and putting up a quick website that can generate ad revenue or whatever, right? But um, I think where it shines for me is in the brainstorming, in the coming up with ideas and even if they aren't necessarily super creative ideas, mm -hmm. to me, it's the idea that it um, it's triggering things that I that I wouldn't have thought of, or that um, my brain wasn't going down that path. Mm -hmm. And by having it come up with ideas, mm -hmm. that sort of helps push me around to different things and then allows me to expand on. I, I once, one of the early things I did uh, with with ChatGPT was I created this like writer's room experience where mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you know, you're uh, three different people and this person's named this and they have this kind of a personality and this person has this. And now let's brainstorm coming up with a TV pilot, you know, and then we just, I would, you know, say something and they would respond in, in their different voices. And then, and, and we went down a path. And by the end, I came up with an idea that I thought was really good. I never would have come up with it on my own. Never would have. But it, it just kept pushing me in ways. And, and I didn't always love their ideas. So I'd just be like, nah, let's not do that. Or let's tweak that. Or, or let's expand on that. What else could we do? Right. And I think that's where it really shines. Um, would I then say write an episode of it? No, I mean it's not gonna it's not gonna do that. But you can you can have it do that, and then you can use that as a starting point yeah. where you're gonna just completely rewrite the thing. Because for a lot of people, um, that blank page syndrome is is yes. a tough oh, yeah. thing. Right? You, you <laughs> don't know where to start. You, I mean, listen, I've I've sometimes taken an article or a blog or even a podcast and mm -hmm. fed in all the information into ChatGPT and said, give me an intro to this. And I never use the intro, it just gives me, it all, but it always comes up, comes up with something mm -hmm. that I can work with. And it, it helps me sort of um, get there faster than if I had just done it you know, from scratch on my own. So I think that in that sense, there's a lot of ways yes. that AI can can really really help authors uh, optimize. Absolutely, I agree. With that. That's how that's actually how I started using AI recently to help with headers. So so a client would give me a prompt and say, "Hey, here I want you to write an article about you know uh, extended detection response for you know for cyber attacks and automation of cyber attacks." And I came back and pumped that in into AI, and it came back and said, "Here's the recommended headers that this article should be," and and I liked the headers. Were, and to your point, Greg, I would never have thought of these headers. 
to be honest. It was like, wow, okay, so that's pretty cool. So I would use some of the headers. Then I would start my creative writing. And it just came out to be a better piece. I, I mean, it touched on subjects about, you know, cybersecurity that I didn't even think of. I do think that's a great way. To, again, that became a tool uh, for my writing as well. And it also made my product that I created for my clients much, much better. And I noticed my SEO scores got better. I noticed that the documents became more searchable. The topics were more relevant to the day, um, especially things that rapidly change as quickly as they do in cyber. You know, using the AI to help with headers really helped. Out. I love your blank page because when people have been writing fiction today, they're like, okay, where do I start? It was the day in the morning and sitting at a table in the sunset of Paris, boring <laughs> versus having AI help you with your first first opening paragraph. So yeah, I think there's some value, but I look at it as a wonder as a great tool um, that is gonna help you as a writer make a better product for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um you know there are other ways too you know brainstorming is is definitely the one i use it for the most mm-hmm. um but you know some people are using i i've used it even to proofread to just yes. do a regular proofread yeah. i wouldn't use it like a developmental editor but um say hey what are your suggestions for for grammar and spelling and well spelling you should be catching anyways <laughs> with spell checks but like grammar issues and punctuation and, you know, it'll notice, you know, poorly phrased or, you know, sentences. I don't, it often goes a little off the rails and tries to really rewrite the whole thing in, in, a, in a completely different voice. And sometimes you have to rein it in and be like, listen, I just said proofreading. <laughs> and you can't offend it. And sometimes I'm like, what are you not understanding about proofreading? <laughs> you know, I'm... And, uh, <laughs> Oh no! When you finish? No, I, I'm just saying. Like you can, you can say to it, it's not a person, right? You can't offend it, so you can be like, "Listen, man, get back on track." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I started off as a commercial copywriter and an advertising copywriter, and my strength was always coming up with titles and headlines, and you know, the graphic designer would say, "Hey, we've only got eight characters. Can you fit this into that?" Mm-hmm. And it would take me hours of brainstorming and drinking cups of coffee and stuff. And now you can put something into to AI and say, can you generate 20 taglines and maybe 15 of them will be junk, but there'll be five that maybe you tweak or something and they're good. And it's like, that does it like that. Cause AI, yeah, you can't insult it, but also it doesn't get tired. It doesn't need cups of coffee. It can keep churning out stuff. It doesn't have existential crisis about why the hell is it doing this commercial copywriting instead of writing a novel in Paris. It's yes. like it's it, it, it's a machine and it's a tool. It is. it is. And a good one. And and again, I've I've managed to not only continue to keep writing for people, but I've actually picked up no, more customers because of my content. So again, I as a writer, I, I love I love where AI is gonna do the right thing and do some good things. But at the same point, to your point, Roland, I am not brainstorming for an hour and a half in a coffee shop in downtown Los Angeles anymore. I can pump it in in 10 minutes and get, here you go. And and I'm off and running. Um, and I find it to be more exciting writing to have a third of like, it's like having a, a writing coach with you. It's like someone giving you, Hey, this is where you should be taking it. So think of AI as a good writing coach uh, as well. And uh, when you, when you write by yourself, you know, writers, we have a lot of solitude when we write, um, but AI has become, and by the way, this is also common in software development. Now with Microsoft a Copilot that they picked up from GitHub, now that now Copilot is giving the developers some code suggestions. Hey, by the way, while you're writing, you may want to use this source code or use this line of coding. So I think the idea of having a Copilot for fictional writers and blog writers, I, I think is very very open. I think I think writers should be open to that idea. Yeah, I I, I like that idea, and I've actually used. Um 
even just chat GPT even to like write just I, I was like very curious about whether it really can produce mm -hmm. you know workable code so I I would be like write the uh, give me a version of the snake game you know that I can put in in HTML that I could just put into my uh, into my browser and and it did and then you could tweak it you'd be like okay change the color of this and, and show me scores and every time this happens make this happen and and it just rewrites the game. like it amazes me like I think coders because there's less creativity probably have a lot more to worry about than writers do, uh, do. with AI taking over their jobs. Well, I think they're going to, so I, I know a lot of development people in, in, in the tech space, and uh, it's not them, it's the people above them, it's the chief development officers that are under massive deadlines to produce digital transformation solutions faster because the company's revenue, company's growth, you know, their whole operations models, cutting costs, the pressure to develop faster applications and systems has never been more rapid than it is today. So when they're looking at someone saying, we're now going to move into a market, we don't have six months, we have six weeks. And we need this product and capabilities done. So it's not a question of if the developer likes it or doesn't like it. It's the chief development officer above him that said or her to say, okay, we need that feature in three days. So Copilot is going to be absolutely a necessity for developers. Same way that, you know, what we use for AI for writers is going to be a necessity. We have to produce likable, addressable content within a shorter period of time that has to be marketable, addressable, and more importantly, searchable. Um, so I'm encouraging writers, find a way to embrace AI. It's going to be here. It's a great tool if you know how to be able to put it together. But ultimately, I, your voice is what people want. So there's always going to be a great market. Yeah, you know, one of the things with software development that I'm most excited about as a as a gamer, and I don't have as much time these days, but but I still really enjoy gaming when I can. And, you know, playing um, big sort of open world games, mm -hmm. you know, one of the issues is always sort of like the AI and it isn't great. And then, you know, either it's too hard, it's too easy. It doesn't adapt. You figure out the whole, you figure out the solution and then, and then you can beat it every time or... Um, but also the the interactions with the characters are always a static interaction, right? So now, uh, and it hasn't really, really come out yet, but I still, I'm hearing things about people working on it now, is the idea that you'd have these open world games where um, the characters would be driven by AI so that your interactions with them would be different all the time. And they would, they would um, adapt to whatever it is you're talking about um, within certain constraints, right? So... Uh, but but my point there is that even with that, you still need your writers because you still need that that storyline, the overall storyline, the overall characters to be to be fleshed out. Yeah. But then you you sort of give that information to the AI. You might take a character mm -hmm. and say to him, "Okay, this is your character." Mm -hmm. You tell the AI, "This is this character, and he's this kind of person." So you can act like that. That character, the NPC, the non-playing character, can act like that character talk like them and 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 their answers could be in their style and this and that and maybe you can even tell them um here are some things you can talk about here are some things you can't talk about etc cetera, etc cetera, right they'll have rules but um so somebody has to write all that and and a writer really has to write all that to make Absolutely. it it's where the ai takes over and makes it really super cool is that it's no longer these three canned responses that it can write it's like yeah. you could say something completely off the wall and it'll respond to you Yes. Well, one thing also, and, you know, another point about AI, um, as people are going to discover, is that even though there's 100 million plus people using chat GDP in the world, 
when you look at AI at an organizational level from where people have taken AI and make it actually a production system, less than 5% of the organizations have actually done that. What's really stopping AI right now is the cost. To your point about gaming, I mean, I love Madden NFL, you know, all the time when I played it with EA, but I didn't like the fact that Joe Montana had the best AI. <laughs> I wanted somebody else to be better, but that was a static thing, right? So now they're talking about generating where the players scoring varies depending on how well they perform within the game, which has never been done before. The problem is the data center and the NVIDIA cards that they have to purchase is so expensive. So to get AI to be AI, there's the whole fictional thing of, hey, this is really cool. And the non-fictional thing, yeah, it really works. But what people are missing is the back end of this is incredibly expensive. I mean, the data center compute alone to generate AI to be usable is, is enough to scare most organizations to say, we're kind of in a wait and see. So 2024 is really supposed to, where organizations are finally going to look at saying, we know AI has a very poor return on investment, which had never been profitable. Number two, why are we doing it? We're doing it for employee reduction and we're doing it to better products. So we're doing it to do this. So this is going to be a very important year for AI, even for EA and some of the other gaming companies to say, okay, what do we have to do to do this? Well, we need a hundred million in data center compute. What? <laughs> I mean, that would wipe out their earnings basically. Or a medical company says we're going to use AI to do diagnostics. Well, does that mean we can let go of 10 doctors? No, 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 no. We still need the doctors. Well, okay. Help me here. Why are we spending this money again? That's the CFO issue today. It's the cost. And I think what's really important is that even while they're still trying to figure out the cost, they still need writers. They still need software people. They still need editors. They still need illustrators. They still need the human person to go, well, you all figure that money stuff out. You still need to produce a newsletter every day. <laughs> still got to yeah, and I think that those costs will come down over time. I mean, you yeah. know, I, I see it all the time and what we can do now as opposed to what we could have done even a month ago, especially in the in the homegrown space where mm -hmm. the, the you know, it's one thing to be like, okay, well, it takes forever for OpenAI to come out with a new version or Facebook or whatever. But if you're involved in the sort of like the homegrown space of mm -hmm. people that are producing this stuff and, and coming up with it uh, on their own time, just there's just so many of them out there. And almost daily, you're seeing big changes coming on, on that end. And they're taking these big language models that are huge that you couldn't run on your computer in there, and they're somehow reducing them in size so that they're, you know, maybe not as good, but they're almost as good, but they're a fraction of the size that you now you can run it on your own computer. So I think that, you know, all that sort of stuff is going to get there in time. But where do you think that this is going to go in the future? I mean, you're sort of a futurist, right? You're writing this kind of stuff. You're ingrained in it. Um, where do you think, you know, what do you think is going to be sort of the next big change for, for AI as, as it pertains to writers and how we do our work? Well, let's, let's talk about, you know, one of the obvious things, which is autonomous cars. So autonomous cars was supposed to come out by now where you can sit in your car and the car will drive for you. You suddenly have a cardiac arrest in the car. The car detects that. The car looks up and says, okay, the nearest hospital is here. Let me call the hospital and they'll be waiting for us with your medication and a gurney to wheel you into emergency room. that will immediately plug you in and determine that you've had a heart attack, panic attack, or a potential full cardiac arrest. That's where we are supposed to have been today. Now, what ruined all of that was one number one, cybersecurity. Hackers hacking cars hacking medical devices, hacking 5G networks. So that put a major slowdown. The second thing is, who's paying for all this? 
who's paying for the new cameras that have to go on all the light posts? Who's paying for all this? So where I really think what's really going to hinder AI is not only going to be the cost of AI, but I do think it's the cyber protection of it. It's the trust. It's why I really trust what's coming out of that. And these are all not roadblocks. These are all real world problems that companies that are producing content or, or more importantly, even systems that rely on AI. Uh, autonomous cars is a great example. The robots that they have running around the shopping malls to protect retailers ran over a kid in San Jose a few months ago, right? Was that an AI problem or was that something that was just too mechanical? So there's still so many problems that are coming from it. And again, it goes back to that laziness factor, right? We want to use this because we don't have to hire a security guard. Well, security guard going to cost you 10 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour, and you're replacing it with a half a million dollar robot. So I think people are sort of getting into this. We've got to be AI to be competitive. True. But if you become over AI and you're not ready to absorb the AI, you could be financially wiped out. So I think 2024, as I mentioned, is going to be a real interesting year to find organizations that have found a way to make AI better. They found it to be productive, but more importantly, they found it to be cost effective. If they can't solve cybersecurity problems, cost problems, operational problems, and so on, AI could be the most expensive toy on the shelf. And and that could and it end up, to be honest with you, I mean, give companies three years life cycles, it may even force the company to go bankrupt because they went too AI'd and it didn't pay off. So I think this is going to be a 2024 as people are going to really come to come to that reality of we are going to have AI in our world. This is what this is what we're going to live with. High cost. Hopefully it does this. We think it's going to do this. But that's really where transformation comes from. So I think 24 is going to be an AI transformation year. Wow. Well, that's a that's we are coming up to the end of the, the hour. But that is a kind of a bombshell revelation to, mm-hmm. to wrap things up with. So I find that that fascinating. Maybe we'll have you back next year to see whether your predictions came true. <laughs> I love no. I love to come back. You guys have a wonderful podcast, and I really appreciate you having me on. Um, so, Craig, before we ask um, Patrick to, to tell us where we can find out more about him, do you have any final questions or thoughts? Uh, I don't think I have any more final questions. I think you know we we really did just touch the tip of the iceberg here, and um, I don't know if we'll even need to wait till next year to have Patrick back on and talk about this more. Um, I'm sure that there are some topics we're going to want to dive even deeper into um, in the future, and especially as things sort of continue to at the breakneck pace of of innovation in in this space, right? Um, So, yeah, like, I mean, thanks for coming on and and sort of talking us through all this. I I think the, the key here is that, you know, what we've sort of always been saying is it's not something, A, it's not something to be feared. It's something to be used as a tool, but don't overuse it. Don't expect, don't try to use it for things that it, you know, it really isn't going to be used. What it's going to do a good job on, right? You have to understand the limitations Mm -hmm. and the costs and everything, and then figure out where that fits in your life and your workflow Mm -hmm. to make everything easier and cheaper and better for you. Agree very much so, and and I really agree with you. And I I think as I mentioned, let's look at 2024 as an AI transformation year, uh, and we'll see in a year or even less. We'll see by even by the summer. You know, the Paris Olympics is coming up. How much is NBC going to be using AI to be able to predict how the athletes do, or predict the crowds, or predict the security potential risk to Paris? So AI is everywhere. It's just as writers, we we have to embrace it as a wonderful tool. Just you know, use it cautiously as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Now, Patrick, where can people find out more about you? Where can they go? 
So first of all, uh, psychowriterllc.com uh, has uh, all my books. I have uh, both Sunrise and Saigon, which was released in 2022. Uh, the sequel to that, Shores of Okinawa, is coming out Memorial Day 2024. Uh, these are cybersecurity, uh, with a little bit of international mystery, and a little bit of romance as well. Uh, but psychowriterllc.com, they can be able to find everything about my book and also my podcast as well. That's wonderful. Well, we'll, of course, pop a link down below. And if you want to go and check that out while you're down there, why not leave Patrick a comment and let him know how much you've appreciated what he shared with us today or put your own uh, predictions for how AI is going to impact 2024. Um, And also there's a subscribe button. There's a little bell notification. And we will be back next week with another episode of Fully Booked. So until then, cheerio.